Welcome into Division Two Sports. Today is Thursday, March fourth. Joining me, recording live from Millersville, are Blake and Chris. Boys, how's it feel to be getting in our second show? Feels damn good, man. I'll tell you right now. One thing that I'm excited about is to be out of Terrell Hall and to be at the Gator House podcasting. I can't agree with Blake more. You know, the podcast life is awesome. Spotify has been has been very generous, very good to us, and. Uh, you know, I'm not missing that Terrell Hall studio at all. I'm looking around right now, and boys, I think it's safe to say we upgraded. Roomier. Bit roomier in here. Much roomier. Better well, audio quality, too. Of course. Well, we got a great episode for all of our listeners. Uh, on today's episode, we have an interview with former UGA tight end Arthur Lynch. Uh, we talk about the big UFC card this weekend with an avid UFC fan, um, and some NBA insight from our correspondent Robert Story uh, heading into the All-Star break. Uh, but we'll start with the UFC. UFC 259 will take place uh, Saturday night with three title fights on the card, with the main event being Israel Asanya putting his undefeated record on the line. Uh, this will take place from the Apex Center in Las Vegas. Uh, Blake, tell us about why Adesanya will be undefeated after Saturday. Dana... You've done it again, damn it. You never cease to amaze me. These cards get better and better every time, it feels like. This year already, I feel like we're talking about 2021 being a historic year for the UFC, guys. The growth of the sport is undeniable. We got the chance to interview UFC flyweight Cody Durden recently. I mean, there's a lot to be excited about. And this card on Saturday gets me going. I am ecstatic to see Israel, the last stylebender, Adesanya, back in the octagon, putting on his middleweight belt against the one, the only, the pride of Poland, Jean Blahovich. Blahovich shocked a lot of people last fight, guys, against Dominic Reyes, who showed probably the most dominant performance that anyone has ever had against John Bones Jones. I think this is going to be a brawl. I think this is going to be an awesome fight. I think Adesanya obviously has the edge. And I think that we're going to see a little bit of blood early on from Blahovich. Yeah, that's going to be the main event. But like I said, there's also going to be two other title fights. We have Amanda Nunez. How long has it been since Amanda Nunez uh, came back into the oct- octagon? It feels like since I've been watching the sport, Nunez is just dominating the women's fight game. And, you know, Ronda Rousey had her time where she kind of was the talk of the town, talk of the sport that is. And that didn't last long. Nunez has honestly been the most dominant fighter in the history of the UFC when it comes to winning at the rate she has. Now, she doesn't have the record for title defenses, if I remember correctly, but you know what? Something about that girl, she can scrap, and she's going to be able to do everything and more, I think, come Saturday against Megan Anderson. But the one that I'm really excited about is Peter Yan versus Aljamain Sterling. This is basically a pick so odds makers in Vegas are shaking in their boots right now. I don't know where the money's going, but I'll tell you what I would do. I'd put the house on Aljamain Aljo Sterling. I think this guy is the best bantamweight in the world, and I think he's going to prove it come Saturday night. Yeah, that fight's a pick That'll be the first of the title fights. Uh, then that will be followed by Amanda Nunez, who will be fighting Megan Anderson. Massive favorite uh, is Nunez. And then that the night will conclude uh, with Adesanya. And how do I pronounce his name now? Jean Blahovich. I want to call him Blasiewicz, but we're just going to call him the pride of Poland. This is exciting, too. I mean, even a novice uh, UFC watcher like myself, uh, you know, it's very easy to get very excited for this fight. Uh, the storyline's been building with Adesanya with some of his crazy uh, knockouts and some of his antics in the ring, and he's going to put his 20-0 record on the line. I mean, that you know, that storyline alone kind of makes it must-see TV. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. I couldn't agree more with you there. And one thing that I'm really hoping he does, and I just told you guys this earlier, I'm hoping if he does win and he becomes the two-way champ, I'm hoping he points his finger directly at the camera, and I'm hoping that he points at John Jones sitting in Arizona right now, and he says, get your ass off the couch and let's fight. And I think that's going to get John Jones motivated. We've seen that he's been training, and I think that would be the biggest fight in the history of the sport. Yeah, no question there. Um, but we do, we will consult one of our, uh, an avid listener of the show, uh, Mr. Jack Baldy, uh, who's going to call in in one moment. Um, but, I mean, this card is hype. I mean, there's no question. And uh, I think Baldy can give us a lot of good insight. Um, so here he is. Hey, Jack. 
Welcome into the show. Hey, how you guys doing? We're doing awesome, man. Uh, we're just calling to get some of your uh, UFC insights, so I'll turn it over to Blake, uh, and, and we'll get it going. Big, big card this weekend. Huge. I'm extremely excited. Jack, UFC 259, man. We talk about it all the time, but I want to get your take on this, man. What are your expectations for the card come Saturday night? My expectations are extremely high. You know, this is just the seventh time in UFC history for an event to feature three title fights. So I think that speaks for itself. I think the names on the card also are some of the best and some of the most stacked. You know, even the prelim, you got guys like Dominic Cruz, a former two-time Bantamweight, and Joseph Benavidez, you know, one of the greatest flyweights to ever live. So I I'm extremely excited. Yeah, absolutely, man. I love that you give the shout-out to the former champ, Benavidez. And then, of course, man, Dominic Cruz. We can't forget about him. His most recent fight coming off of a loss to Henry Cejudo. Tough defeat, but I kind of want to talk to you here a little bit about the main event, man. I know you're excited about it. You told me you're a little bit nervous. So I want to ask, what are your expectations for the last style bender on Saturday night, and what does he have to do to beat Jean Blahovich? Yeah, you know, I think Adesanya takes care of business. Uh... He's got all the advantages regarding height, reach, and all that. I think, you know, he, he's going to be too technical at the end of the day. And he's never lost a fight in the UFC, you know. Uh, I think Blahovich's record is 28-7. and seven, So he's he's been taken down a few times in the UFC. And I, I really think it speaks, speaks for the fact that he, he hasn't lost a fight in the UFC, you know. I mean, that's extremely hard to do. And no one's even come close, really, to upsetting him, so... I think I think there's just levels to the to the fight game, and I think Adesanya is on another level. Jack, staying on this Adesanya fight, we don't want to go too far ahead, but if he does win, who would you think is next for the potential champ? It really depends on what division he wants to stay at. I, you know, you know, I, I know a lot of people are going to say maybe call out John John Jones, but I just don't see that happening. John Jones weighs about 250 pounds right now, and I don't see him losing all the progress that he's made to get his body right for the heavyweight division. You know, that'd be him cutting 245, I mean, sorry, cutting 45 pounds to make light heavyweight. And I just don't see that happening anytime soon. I think if he stays in welterweight, I would love to see him fight Robert Whitaker. I know Robert Whitaker has been on a tear recently. I think he's on a five or six fight win streak since his loss to Adesanya. And his his fight with Paulo Costa is going to be huge. If he wants to stay in light heavyweight, I think Glover Teixeira definitely deserves the next chance. And you know, Thiago Santos is fighting on this car on 259 as well, so it could potentially set up a Glover Teixeira versus Thiago Santos rematch, depending on how it goes for Santos. Right. Let's cut a little bit of weight here, man. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about these smaller weight classes. I know you're a big fan, and uh, you know you're you're a Henry Cejudo guy, so. He's enjoying the retirement life right now, but Peter Yan just defeated Jose Aldo back in July on the original Fight Island to become the Bantamweight champ. He's going to face Aljo Sterling on Saturday. The fight is currently a coin flip, according to oddsmakers in Vegas. Which way do you see this fight going? This is uh, something I've been thinking about all week. It really depends on how the fight goes. You know, it's a boxing style versus a jiu-jitsu style. I think... Aljamain Sterling is one of the best jiu-jitsu guys in the USC. And if he stays in front of Peter Yan, I see it going in Yan's favor. But if if Aljamain Sterling is able to take down Peter Yan, I think I think it's going to Aljamain Sterling. But like like I said, Peter Yan's probably one of the strongest and most hard hitting bantamweights uh maybe to ever live, honestly. He's undefeated in the USC and has never lost. Versus Aljamain Sterling does have, I think, three losses in the UFC. So, you know, it, it really depends on how the fight goes, if it's on the ground or standing up. But in, in that fight, I do like, I'm going to go with Pewter Yan, actually. I think, I think I just, you know, he has fought wrestlers in the past, and none of them have been able to do anything to him. I think of the fight with, oh, what's his name? Um, Jose Aldo? No, not Aldo. The the guy who was the, uh, the the ultimate fighter coach with Conor McGregor. Uh, you're talking about Frankie Edgar. No, the the, the California guy uh, with long oh, Uriah Faber. 
Faber, yeah. You know, he he was one of the best wrestlers of all time, and he just couldn't come close to doing anything on the ground. So I, I, I like Peter Jan, Peter Jan in that fight. Well, Jack, Kamara Usman is rumored to be fighting the BMF Jorge Masvidal sometime in September. Um, but who poses the biggest threat in the welterweight division to the current champ, and what does Jorge have to do to beat Usman? I think, I definitely think um, George, Ma, George Masvidal poses the biggest threat to Usman in the, in the division. You, you saw what Usman was able to do to his former teammate Burns, knocking him out in the third round. I just think there's really levels to I think Usman may be, other than George St. Pierre, the greatest welterweight of all time, obviously. I mean, he's got wins over Leon Edwards, Damian Maya, Dos Anjos, Woodley, Covington Burns, and obviously George Masvidal. But I think it speaks a lot for Masvidal that he was able to go the, the distance, a full five rounds with, Mas, with Usman on six days' notice. So, you know, give him a full camp. You never know what can happen. I think his best chance is trying to get him to get Usman in the first round. You, you saw what Burns was able to do. Almost had him, had him really shaken up and definitely hurt him with some of those overhand strikes. But I don't know. I think he was Usman was so dominant in the first fight against Masvidal. I just don't see it going any other way. I'm taking I'm taking Usman in that fight again. Yeah, man, we'll see. I don't know. Six days notice, but I want to shift gears here a little bit. Dana White and the UFC brass have announced some incredible fights. Got the chance to talk to Cody Durden, like I mentioned earlier, a few weeks back. He was really excited about the Gilbert Burns and Usman fight. I'm very excited for this Adesanya and uh, Jean Blahovich fight personally, but I'm curious to know, out of all the fights that the UFC brass have, has announced so far, which one are you most looking forward to? There's a few I'm uh, looking forward to. I'm really looking forward to Stipe and Francis, the rematch. I think I think Stipe is obviously the greatest heavyweight and the baddest man on the planet. But, you know, Francis has some unbelievable power. We've seen what he's done to other heavyweights like Rosenstruck in his last fight. So I really, I really think it depends on how it goes. I think if Stipe takes him to the ground and is able to out-wrestle him, I think it's going his way again. But there's also, you know, the potential. Stipe has been knocked out in the past. Cormier was able to do it to him in the first round a couple of years ago to become the champ champ. So, you know, I like Stipe in the rematch. I'm also really looking forward to Robert Whitaker and Paulo Costa. I think that's going to be an absolute dog fight. Those are two just, just, just brawlers, guys who just throw haymakers at each other. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of two of those, both of those guys. And, uh, you know, if Whitaker does win that fight, then there's then it sets him up for the for the rematch against against Adesanya if he does choose to stay at the middleweight. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens on Saturday if Adesanya does end up winning and deciding, you know, which which, you know, weight class he really wants to fight in. But I bought stock in Hamzat Chemaev and also Kevin Holland in 2020. And I like to uh, give myself a little credit for hopping on these guys a little bit early. So I want to ask you. As a as a longtime fight fan, who should these casual UFC fans be looking out for in 2021? Who should they keep on their radar? He's actually fighting on UFC 259. I think he's the second fight of the main event. Islam Makachev is someone I would really uh, keep my eye out for. He's 18 and one. He's never lost in the UFC. He's actually Habib's teammate and. Habib, what everything that he has said about him, that he said he's going to run through the lightweight division. He's going to run through guys like Charles Oliveira, Conor McGregor, Dustin Poirier. He, he, he was very confident in his teammates' ability. And Daniel Cormier also mentioned that Makachev is probably a better wrestler overall than Khabib and said he could probably take him in a straight wrestling match. So, I mean, if, if Daniel Cormier is saying that stuff about Khabib, the hype must be real. I'm also buying stock on Brandon Moreno, the flyweight who fought Davidson Figueroa a couple months ago. I mean, that was one of the greatest fights I've ever seen in my entire life. It was just back and forth the entire five rounds. So I'm looking forward to the rematch. So those those two guys are definitely buying stock on. I'm definitely looking forward to their future. And I think Moreno's got a chance to become the new uh, flyweight champion if he upsets uh, Figueroa. 
Yeah, right. And Figueredo, obviously, is probably trying to target, I, I would think, Henry Cejudo, lure him back out of retirement. But Cejudo could come back and fight Volkanowski. He could fight anybody. So we'll see. Uh, but, Jack, we appreciate your time, man. Looking forward to catching up with you here soon about UFC 259. And uh, good luck to you if you're taking any action come Saturday. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. I had a great time. Absolutely, buddy. We'll see you. All right, that was uh, Mr. Jack Valdi with a lot of great insight um, about the UFC in general and this weekend's card. Um, but before we move on to the NFL, Blake, I'll turn it over to you for possibly a pick for this weekend. Yes, guys. So I want to let the listeners know I have been notoriously bad when it comes to picking these fights. So I want to go ahead and just let you guys know I'm going to give you four picks. Pick and choose wisely. Uh, there is a, a listener to the show that is very adamant about fading these picks, and he has profited. Shout out to our boy, Crying Ryan. Um, I want to go ahead and I just want to go go down the list real quick. We're just going to do the top four fights. Uh, so I'm taking Israel Adesanya, the style bender, the champ currently. I think that he's going to beat Jean Blahovich. Uh, I believe it's minus 240 right now. So the odds aren't really, you know, aren't juicy by any means, but... You know, if you're looking to get a little greasy, throw him in a parlay. I would recommend doing that. I think he will win come Saturday. Amanda Nunez, I have to take her against Megan Anderson, but the line, man, is awesome. So thinking about throwing a little bit of money on Megan Anderson, just a slight small bet. But if I'm being smart, I got to take Nunez. I'm going to go with Aljamain Sterling in the Bantamweight title bout against Peter Yan. I believe uh, Sterling is minus 105 right now. So it's basically a coin flip. I think that Aljo is better on the ground, and I think that's going to come into the equation early rather than later. I think that he's going to end up winning by submission, and I think that that fight is going to be incredible. And then the last one, Jack just talked about it. Islam Makachev versus Drew Dober. Jack's buying stock in Makachev. I'm going to go against him. I'm taking Drew Dober come Saturday. Number 15 ranked fighter in the world. I think that this guy can really, really, really make some noise in the lightweight division if given the opportunity, and I think he's going to have it on Saturday. All right. Well, we are uh, looking forward to the highly anticipated uh, UFC 259 um, on Saturday night. Um, but we'll move on to the NFL. As we know, we're at that kind of point in the NFL, not, not, not a lot of news coming out. However, today the news did break that J.J. Watt signed a two-year deal with the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, Watt will now play opposite of Chandler Jones, um, and this defense might show some promise. Uh, Watt also will be reunited with DeAndre Hopkins um, in Arizona. But Chris, I'll start with you. How does this reshape this team and uh, the division? So yeah, I mean, this is a little bit out of left field. You know, we were kind of narrowing uh, potential teams for JJ at uh, the Packers, Bills, Browns, kind of. So him going to the Cardinals is definitely something dip, uh, different. But him uniting with Chandler Jones, two of probably the best pass rushers of the last decade in the NFL, is a very, very scary thought. And then that unit being coached by Vance Joseph, an absolute exotic defensive coordinator. I mean, when you think about getting put on third and long situations against the Cardinals defense this upcoming year, that's scary. It's very scary. And Russell Wilson's already been talking about how he doesn't like getting hit too much. So I'm sure he just loved that news today. Um... One thing I will say, though, I mean, I, I think this will absolutely tremendously improve their pass rush, and J.J. has shown that he's no slouch against the run, even uh, as his age, as he gets a little bit more up there in age. The one downside, though, that I can see happening is that it was a two-year deal that was worth $23 million guaranteed. Uh, so, you know, if J.J., you know, and obviously he's an Iron Man, but, you know, we've seen him uh, get a little banged up in his body over the last couple of years. So if he's in a position where maybe he has to miss games, this could be a deal that hurts the Cardinals team with, them being locked into him with so much money. But overall, man, this should improve this unit. Like I said, this pass rush, and they're going to be scary on third downs. Yeah, they're going to be brutally good on third downs. And Vance, jo Vance Joseph is going to be truly having the time of his life <laughs> Shout out to Sergio because Jay. of this signing. I love it. I'm all for it. J.J. Watt is still an ultimate competitor. Chris said it best. He is an Iron Man. You know, he plays through adversity, but we've seen age catch up to him. And that happens with some of these guys. And I'm not really concerned about the $23 million in guaranteed money. They have it to give. And I think that that young core could actually maybe make a move and end up winning the division this year with this signing. I think it's huge for them. So I'm excited to see what J.J. Watt brings to the pass rush. But like you said as well, Chris, the run game. Guy can still stuff the run. And that's why I think that the $23 million is warranted. I mean, Arizona... 
or Pittsburgh or Green Bay? Where would you rather go? Pick your stuff up and move to Arizona where the weather's nice or go to Green Bay, go to Pittsburgh. I mean, let's be real. He's played a long time for a defensive tackle and he's been very productive. He has no reason to go somewhere he doesn't want to. And he wants the money. He's not really concerned, I don't think, with winning a ring right now. And I know that may sound off to y'all, but $23 million and guaranteed, it's probably better than a lot of other teams were prepared to offer him. Yeah, I mean, and I, I, I bet he really evaluated uh, Vance Joseph in this uh, decision. Like, I'm sure that, you know, JJ's a smart guy, and, you know, he definitely obviously chose to go play out in Arizona. And, I mean, this is kind of like a championship-type move that you see teams making after, you know, after year one, two, uh, uh, of a new head coach and new regimen, you, you see these kind of culture-type moves of older, you know, really good football players. And, I mean, J.J. Watt coming into a locker room, you know, people, everyone who's ever worked with them speaks very, very highly of him. It seems like a kind of like a championship-level move that the Cardinals think that they made. Yeah, I would agree with you. Um, and, you know, that pass rush, like you said, is just going to be scary for the quarterbacks in the, that division and those that uh, play them. I do believe the Cardinals play the Texans next weekend. Um in uh, in Arizona, I believe. Okay, all right. So, I believe Houston does go out there. Um, we'll, we'll be on the lookout for that one. But like I said, we're kind of in a dead period here uh, for NFL news. It's pretty much all speculation. Um, but that was some nice piece of news, you know, today. But we'll keep our ears peeled for news um, in the coming weeks that concerns Deshaun Watson, Russell Wilson, and even Sam Darnold. Um, so we will just wait on that front. Um, but we'll now move on to our interview with damn good dog Arthur Lynch. Uh, we talked about his time in Athens, the 2012 Dogs team, and what the hu- future holds uh, for Georgia football in 2021. Um, so here he is, uh, Arthur Lynch. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the main event of the evening. Today we are joined by former UGA tight end and Dan the Dog, Mr. Arthur Lynch. Arthur, thanks for joining the show today. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Thank you for having me. Yep. Uh, Arthur played in Athens from 2009 to 2013. Uh, let's start things off with your early playing days. You went to high school in Massachusetts, however, ultimately decided to take your talents to Athens to play a more refined brand of football. Um, what factored into that decision specifically with Co- Coach Rick's role in your recruitment? Uh, yeah, uh, great, great question. Um, so I'm from a town called Dartmouth, Massachusetts, very similar to Dartmouth College, not the same place, but spelled the same. Uh, with a you know, local high school there, Dartmouth High School. I was originally committed to Boston College where my mom had gone to school and my sister had ran track there. One of my sisters ran track there. Um, but I decommitted, um, er, like junior year, uh, spring, I believe. And I had, I had been getting recruited by, you know, schools in the SEC, ACC and right across the country. Uh, but I decided to go down South to look at a number of the schools that I had not previously looked at. I mean, Florida, Georgia, clubs and schools like that. Anyway, uh, it really wasn't Coach Rick that caught my attention uh, first. It was John Lilly, who is now the tight ends coach at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, he ended up being my coach uh, all four years. And I just really struck an interesting kind of relationship with him. Uh, very easy to talk to. Uh, and I kind of you know, looked up to him a lot of, in a lot of different ways. And then obviously, once I got on campus, meeting Coach Rick and then Mike Bobo, the offensive coordinator, it was really an easy sell, um, and, and my mom and my grandfather played a big role, uh, played, played a prominent role in you know choosing where I went to school, uh, and I, I wanted their approval. And they all, you know, obviously, Coach Rick, Mike Bobo, and, and Lily, uh, they're, they're high character guys, and you know they're they had the approval of my mother and my grandfather pretty early on. Ryan, uh, in in that game leading up to the. Um, the Chris Conley catch that set up time expiring. You made a couple of very underrated plays um, to set the dogs up first and goal. Can you just talk a little bit about that drive and uh, just how competitive that game really was? Yeah, sure thing. Um, we had obviously Aaron Murray uh, went down, uh, has gone down to probably, probably the greatest quarterback to ever play at UGA, um, at least statistically. I mean, I, I think you obviously you can make an argument about guys who run on the NFL, but. 
you know, I think one thing that we were very good at offensively is an execution. And, you know, our kind of like hurry up one minute offense that we had to execute uh, at the very end of that game in order to get into, you know, striking distance in the red zone. I think we, we, we just did a really good job. We were coached up really well by our, uh, obviously our coaches. When we executed, we did the little things and that, you know, that comes down to protection from the backs, um, the offensive line, uh, obviously outside of the edge with guys like Malcolm, Marlon, and, um, Marlon was hurt, so, you know, Malcolm, um, TK, and, and, and Ben, you look, at, you look at how we were able to just kind of like flawlessly go down the field with, in, in such a quick, uh, in such a quick amount of time against a really, really, really good uh, Alabama defense. Arthur, our next question comes from one of our listeners. Uh, he'd like to know which player on that physical 2012 dog defense did you hate lining up across from in practice? Also very funny because I actually had this very conversation with my father last night. Uh, I, it, it rarely happened, but in spring, in spring ball leading up to the 2012 season, we uh, they would they would play. They'd kind of get in this like weird three down lineman, almost like a bear, uh, like a a bear defense. But they would put Kwame Gathers, who was about 370 pounds, on the nose, and then they would put John Jenkins or was 355 pounds, you know, kind of further out in a five technique. And there was a certain play called 55-56 duo where if the tackle, if the linebacker was lined up a certain way, the tackle was going was gonna to double team the nose to the backside backer. It would leave me alone on the five technique. And so there was one play where, um, you know, we called duo with Trey and Colton leaves, and I have to do an inside footwork step and get my hands on the inside of John Jenkins. And I, you know, I'm just at 255 pounds. My butt, he's got 100 pounds on me. Let's just say I ended up on my back. So that probably is the guy I least enjoy blocking. But from a consistent standpoint, uh, day in, day out, uh, I, uh, I'd probably say either Cornelius Washington or Jarvis Jones were two guys that were just – for lack of a better phrase, pain in the ass to block because they were just so athletic, so strong, and they were so good with their hands. And, you know, if at the end of the day, if, if you lose inside leverage with your hands, you're going to get tossed around like a rag doll. And against those two guys, uh, you know, it happens sometimes. Yeah, that could not have been fun having Jenkins on your inside shoulder. No, uh, it was I mean, it was hell. <laughs> but uh... – Going back to uh, your freshman and sophomore year, you played on the same offense as uh, A.J. Green. What immediately stood out to you about A.J. as a dog? So the, uh, the funny story I always tell about A.J., and I was not very close with A.J. He was older than me, and he was just always such a man on a mission. We knew that he was going to be, you know, first-round pick, All-American, the whole thing. Um, but it actually, wasn't even on a football field. It was in the uh, Ramsey Rec Center. We were all playing pickup basketball. And, I mean – AJ was just—he's obviously a phenomenal athlete. But watching him play basketball, I was like, "This kid is unbelievable!" And uh, I mean, he can shoot, he can dribble, he can pass. He's about six four. He can jump, obviously. He was, you know, pulling up from four or five, six feet behind the three-point line, and just not missing. And then he'd, you know, drive and, and like tomahawk jam it. And you're just like, "This guy should be playing in the NBA." So I go up to him like, "AJ, like, did you think about playing basketball in college?" And he was like. He was like, yeah, I did. I was like, well, where's that? He's like, well, you know, if I would have chose basketball, I'd be starting at UNC Chapel Hill right now. And I was like, oh, got it. I was like, that that makes sense. And I think at that point, I kind of realized that he was such a special, not just football player, but athlete. And, you know, there are so many examples of, of his athletic proudness on the football field. Obviously, you guys saw it on week in and week out of the games. But in, in practice, it was just ridiculous because there wasn't a guy who could cover him. Boykin would like to tell you he could cover him, but I'll tell you right now, he wasn't covering him. <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk about another damn good dog here. Uh, I, I want to bring up your guy, Aaron Murray. Um, I know you got a little oh. bit. I know you got a little, little bit of bragging rights over Aaron Murray. Uh, how many hours of sleep has Aaron missed out on thinking about how how you have a higher completion percentage than him? I don't know if you lose sleep over it, but I certainly remind him, you know, every every now and now and again that I, I have a higher completion percentage. Um, and I don't know, Aaron's a funny guy, and, and, and you know, as soon as I as soon as I like completed the pass, I went up to him like on the sideline. I was 
I mentioned that to him. I slapped in the ass. So I was like, hey, just by the way, like you're never going to have a higher completion, well, completion percent is higher than I, than I have. But Aaron, obviously, I can't say enough about the guy. I mean, he's one of, uh, he's one of my closest friends. Um, but his dedication um, to the football program at UGA while he was there was second to none. I mean, he put in so many hours outside the required ones in order to be great. And, you know, I think luckily for all of us, you know, we got to watch him, you know, break pretty much every record in the, in the UGA passing book, uh, passing records books uh, because of that work he put in. And it's the stuff that no one ever, no one outside the program would ever see, but he wanted to be great and he was great. All right, Arthur, I kind of want to shift gears here a little bit. So I saw an article a while back from uh, the Red and Black after the uh, SEC championship game against Alabama in 2012. You had a quote that said, I'm outspoken about everything. I'm outspoken about the idea that I hate ketchup and mayonnaise. So now I have oh, yeah. it's nine years later. Can we get an update on your feelings on those condiments? Yeah, I know. I don't eat either one. I think they're disgusting. Oh. People, think I'm, people think I'm a sociopath for not liking ketchup, mm. but I just, I've never ate it. Um, my, when, when I was little, if we were at McDonald's or something, and my sisters had extra fries. If they had ketchup in their little, like, uh, cardboard McDonald's fry holder, I'd be like, no, nah, I'm good, even if I was still hungry. So <laughs> I, I, I do like some condiments. I'm not completely uh, sociopathic, but mayonnaise and ketchup are definitely two things that are not on the uh, on the palate, let's say. Noted. Right. <laughs> Sorry uh, if you guys are from the Heinz family or something. But. <laughs> no. uh, Arthur, in 2012, Todd Gurley and Keith Marshall took college football by storm, and you played a significant role in the blocking game uh, during that time. Dog Nation loved the one-two punch and coined the name Gershel for these two. What made them so productive? Um, and would the running backs that has, have succeeded them, is UGA the running back you? Uh so to answer the first part of your question, I think what made Todd and uh, Todd and Keith so special and so effective was they were obviously a little bit different. They kind of reminded me of the CJ Spiller um, and uh, who was the other guy from Clemson from years ago, but they they called like the Thunder and Lightning. You know, I, obviously Todd was very very fast. He was a track guy, but Keith just had like unreal speed and that burst. I mean, he goes zero to 60 very, very quick. So I think they both kind of complemented one another. Uh, and they, they obviously just had natural talent, which, which you know, it, it, you can't coach, you can't teach. But I think the thing that made those two special is they were just, they were very, very close on and off the field. And they pushed each other to be great. You know, if Todd had one, had a really good run, I, I know the Tennessee game, for instance, in 2012, when we played him at home, you know, Gurley would start the game out. He'd have a couple of bruising runs and go great. But all, all of a sudden, Keith would come back and take off for 60 on a, on a, on a sweep, you know. And I think they, they fueled off each other because um, they were competitive. The other one wanted to be they – they both wanted to be great. And they both knew that, you know, that they were going to have to split carries. They tried to one-up each other. Um, and I think that's why we were able to be so successful is those two guys never resented each other for splitting time. They just elevated each other to go to the next level. Unfortunately, Keith had a lot of injuries in his career and, and didn't get to get to the same heights as Todd did, but I have no doubt had he stayed healthy, he would have. Um, to answer the second part of your question, uh, I, think, I think in 2021, uh, after seeing what Todd has done in the NFL and then Sonny Michelle and, and obviously Nick Chubb, I think it's very hard to argue otherwise. Uh, I think there's a number of schools out there who in years past might have claimed the title, running back you and obviously Ohio State's had some great ones. Uh, USC had a run there, uh, Oklahoma as well. But I think it's very hard to argue right now the level of talent that Georgia has put into the NFL. Really put into the NFL for those guys who have succeeded at the highest level. You got Swift, you got Chubb, you got Michelle, you got Gurley. I mean, I think those guys have earned the right to call themselves and call UGA running back key right now. Now, things are always subject to, subject to change, right? But as long as Kirby keeps recruiting the guys that they're recruiting, you know, to hand the ball off to, it, it, it's going to be very hard to talk UGA running back key. 
Right. And uh, obviously with Zamir White and James Cook, it seems like things are obviously headed in the right direction to keep the title of RBU. But Arthur, as your time in Athens came to a close, you were drafted by the Miami Dolphins in the fifth round in the same draft class as Browns wide receiver Jarvis Landry. In your short experience with the team, what can you tell us about new Detroit Lions head coach Dan Campbell? That's the total BA, man. Just a guy that is just what you see is what you get. He was my position coach for uh, while I was at Miami. And he was just a guy that everyone loved and everyone respected in the locker room, whether it was offense, defense, uh, coaches, trainers, because he worked his ass off to be the best possible coach he could be and to get myself and all my teammates and fellow tight ends and really teammates ready to go. Um, he's a tough dude. I think he played 11 years in the NFL. He's from Texas, went to Texas A&M, just a rugged, strong guy. I remember one day I walked into the facility. He was, he was power cleaning at like 7 a.m., 330 pounds. I mean, this is a coach. You know what I mean? 40-plus years old. And he's just a guy that grinds. He real, he's old school, but he – he gets every ounce of talent out of you. And I think that's what makes him such a good coach is where you may be weak in some areas, he'll strengthen up the areas in which you're great to, so you can overcompensate for some of your weaknesses. I know that's how it was for me. And he, just, he was a guy that I never wanted to let down. If I had a missed blocking assignment or I dropped a pass in practice, like I was bummed for myself, but I was super bummed that I like, wasn't reflecting positively for a coach Dan Campbell. So to see him rise to success as he's done um, and that is no surprise to me. And I think he'll continue to do so as long as he's coaching football. Right. Um, well, Arthur, let's talk a little bit about uh, the 2021 Georgia Bulldogs. Uh, they had a very interesting 2020 campaign uh, riddled with quarterback controversy and COVID issues. Um, what are your expectations for the dogs in 2021 with their quarterback position settled and a uh, number of skills guys ready to make that offense um, transitional? Well, I think first and foremost, you got you to talk about the most important position on the field, and that's quarterback. Uh, and I think it's no mystery that we had some quarterback problems early on in the, in the season between, you know, guys um, leaving and then obviously Stetson coming in and then getting hurt. But I think that – problem is solved with JT Daniels. Uh, I think JT is obviously, I don't know, I do not know him personally, so I can't speak to the type of person he is, but by all, everything from a bird's eye view seems like he's a really good kid. He works very hard. You can tell he has the respect uh, of his teammates. He commands the huddle well, and he can sling it. You know, uh, if, there's, if there's one school that has been a great evaluator of talent at the quarterback position, it was in Southern California, uh, and they saw enough of him to let him start as a true freshman. Obviously, he got hurt and lost his starting position. But I think what, when you don't have a question mark under center, it allows your team to do things and move forward in ways that you otherwise would not be able to. So from that standpoint, I think offensively, they'll, they'll, they will be very good because they, they have plenty of weapons on the outside at tight end. And they're running back, and they seem to have just reloaded year in, year out in the offensive line. But, you know, they continue to mature offensively as they did in the second half of the season. I think it's pretty obvious that Kirby has been known to be able to put together a defense year in, year out. So from my standpoint, from where I sit, I, I think it's it's hard not to think that they'll be back in the SEC championship game. Obviously, you have to go out and play the games. And they have a tough schedule because it's the SEC, and the SEC always has a tough schedule because it's the premier conference in, in college football. But I just have a hard time believing that there's a better team in the East. Um, and, you know, it's, that says a lot because, you know, Florida is obviously a very good team. And I think there's a couple other ones that, that will surprise us. But with JT Daniel under center and the defense, if the defense, if, it, if the defense continues to be as good as they've been in recent years, I find it very hard to, uh, to believe. I find it very hard to argue the fact that they will end up being back in the SEC championship game. Whether or not they win it, win it, I think it depends on how, you know, how much Alabama can reload. But if, if history teaches us anything, Alabama will reload. That they will. 
And then, Arthur, our final question for you, uh, as we all know, it is Super Bowl week. And uh, I have a hunch of which way you'll lean due to your uh, Patriots fandom. But Chiefs or Bucks next Sunday, uh, who are you taking and why? So, obviously, I'm, I'm a Tom Brady guy. always have been. Um, I've been you know, 2001 when he took over from Drew Bledsoe. Uh, but I, I would love to see Tom win. Um, but I just can't. I, I think it's – you know, it, 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 you're a fool if you're betting against Patrick Mahomes in the Kansas City Chiefs. I think it'll be close, but I'm, I think it'll be like a 35-31, 35-31 game the Chiefs winning. And here's why. I just, I like the, when you have two quarterbacks that are, you know, will go down as two of the greatest of all time in Patrick Mahomes and Tom Brady. One of them probably the greatest of all time in Tom Brady. It's, it's all about the weapons around them because, you know, they cancel each other out, right? Because they're both so, they're so unique talents and so good at what they do. Um, and although the Buccaneers have a load of talent uh, at the wide receiver position, running back position, I just, I mean, in my opinion, I think Travis Kelsey is the best offensive weapon, not a quarterback in the NFL. Um I think Hill has just elite speed. Um, I love their running backs. They have, a, they have a veteran offensive line. I just have a very hard time betting against Andy Reid and the Bucks. And I think, you know, because they are the defending champs, they, I know you're not, you're not supposed to have a chip on your shoulder, but you do because you want to go and defend what's rightfully yours, so to speak. And I think Andy Reid is, is more of a proven coach. Um, than Bruce Arians, and I think that's going to be the difference maker as well. Uh, so I, I think the Chiefs are going to win, but it's going to be one hell of a Super Bowl, and I think a lot of points are going to be scored, so it will be a fun one to watch. I'll agree with you there. Well, uh, that wraps it up from us here at uh, Division Two. We want to thank Arthur Lynch for a great interview. Uh, Arthur, we appreciate you speaking with us. Go dogs, and don't be a stranger in the future. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, anytime you want to chat football, just uh, give me a shout. Happy to do it. Great stuff there from former Georgia tight end Arthur Lynch talking about uh, some great stories from that 2012 uh, Georgia football team. It was very exciting. But he is not the only member of that team that we have coming on the show. Is that correct, Blake? That is correct, guys. We're happy to announce, and we've already mentioned to some of our listeners, that former damn good dog, uh, Amarlo Herrera, linebacker on the team, did make it to the big leagues for a little while, but he was a captain on that team, if I remember correctly, back in 2012. And, you know, it's going to be great to get his insight, but we appreciate Arthur for coming on, and we, you know, maybe we'll get him back on closer to the season. Absolutely. Um, but we'll move on to the NBA. Uh, with the NBA, we are happy to bring on our consultant, Mr. Robert Story. Uh, Robert is joining us here podcasting from the Gator House. But I'll get started with this piece of news that I think we all got very excited about. Lloyd Pierce was fired by the Hawks after going 14-20 and 20 with the team. Uh, some great news for the Hawks I've seen in the past couple hours. Even the players were happy for a change of scenery. But before I go to Rob Blake, I'll start with you because you are a big Lloyd hater. Yeah. To say the least. That guy never had what it took to be a true head coach in the NBA. And he may be a great man, but how far is being a good man going to get you in this league? It's about wins and losses at the end of the day. And that's really what it comes down to with Coach Pierce. How many games did he end up coaching? Like, I mean, a couple, a couple 80, hundred. Maybe three seasons yeah. almost. And he had one of the worst records out of any coach with that amount of games of all time. It's like 60 and 120 or something. It's unbelievably bad at how the Hawks have just had these expectations rising over the last few years. But as a Hawks fan, I'll tell you, I think Lloyd Pierce was hindering the team. And uh, I think that this move really brings something else to the table for the Hawks going forward. And if the guys wanted to change – Give them the change. Maybe we'll get a better product on the court, and that's what matters. Well, Rob, I'll go to you. How do you see this new Hawks team uh, performing under McMillan? I mean, McMillan's a great coach. He's been around the league for a very long time. I thought coming into the season the expectations were a little bit high for Lloyd and the team, but we started out 5-1, and one, and then from there we just we went straight downhill, and there was no promise coming into it. So... I wasn't a huge fan of the firing. Blake's been on this since day one, and he's kind of been pulling me towards it. 
But seeing the report today that the players really wanted a new voice, that makes me feel better that they'll at least be out there playing a little bit harder. Still don't necessarily, excuse me, necessarily love Trey Young and all that he does, but if your franchise superstar is happy, then we're going in a better direction than we were yesterday. That's right, and something that we're not uh, even bringing up is that under McMillan, the Hawks were doing very well. I mean, these yeah. guys beat the Nuggets outright. Uh, they beat the Celtics outright when Lloyd was away uh, for the birth of his child. But, I mean, McMillan could, you know, sneak us into a playoff spot. I completely agree with that, and I'm interested to hear what Robert says about this. But I think that Nate McMillan brings a different dynamic to this team. He's an overachiever and always has been. He's had success at not just one club with the Pacers, but many. Nate McMillan is a coach that can come in and change the entire dynamic and culture of this Hawks basketball team, and they need it, guys. Yep, uh, so we'll see if the Hawks can improve on 14-20 and 20, uh, record and get sneak into the playoffs. But we'll move on to one of the hottest teams in the NBA, the New York Knicks. Off to their best start since 2013, they're currently 18-17, and 17, um, and I think they're at the fourth seed in the East. Me and Blake have been really excited about these this Knicks team, but Blake, what makes them so special? Man, I'll tell you what makes them special to me, and that's that they cover in the first half. I could care less about the game with these guys, but I'll tell you, man, they're really overachieving this year for Coach Tom Thibodeau. The insert or him being inserted as the head coach there, a lot of New York Knicks fans were kind of like, "What? What are we doing? We could have gone and got somebody else, right?" But Tibbs came in. He went and he brought over a guy like Derrick Rose, who hasn't played that well yet, but they're making moves. They're going to probably make another move around the deadline. This team can make a push for middle of the pack in the Eastern Conference, and with their youth and the development that we've seen at an early stage in the season, I expect continued success for the New York Knickerbockers. Yeah, you know, it's just great to see uh, a lot of people have been clowning this franchise for the last, it seems like, 10 years, uh, just because, I mean, there's just so much that happens with them, but... Um, I love the fact, too, that they're up to the four seed now because you just get all those memes and pictures that says, uh, what team does not belong? And you got like, yeah. the Bucks, Nets, Celtics, and then, uh, and then these guys. So that's always good to see. I think they do belong. I hope you so. Know, I know that sounds crazy, but in a weak Eastern Conference, you know, people had expectations for the Hawks. Like, the Knicks are actually, you know, exceeding right now. And with the Hawks, you know, I look at a team like them, and they're on, they're on the downside. The Knicks are on a, on a trend. We talked about teams trending up, teams trending down. We should have given a little bit more love to those New York Knicks. I know we mentioned them, but they, they're, on a, they're on a tear right now. And I think that, you know, like we mentioned earlier, the continued success is something that I see in the future of the New York Knicks. We'll move on to a team that I think we were talking about last week, uh, the Los Angeles Lakers. They've really overcome their offensive struggles uh, in the absence of Anthony Davis, something they were really struggling with um, by routing both the Blazers and the Warriors. Um, but, Rob, I'll go to you. Uh, how well is this Lakers team really performing, and is LeBron's MVP stock worth taking? Uh, we'll get to the MVP stock in a minute, but – I know last week when y'all talked about the Lakers, they were in the midst of a 1-4 run without Anthony Davis and Schroeder. And now that Schroeder is back in the lineup, they've been playing a lot better. And that just goes to show how important he really has been to that team this year. Does They added what we thought would be a lot of depth in terms of coming off the bench and helping out, but it seems they're pretty a pretty top-heavy team. And all the guys that we saw, the young guys, THT, a couple other fellers playing in the preseason, they're not actually ready to contribute and like help win at a big like time NBA level. And it takes like Schroeder, he was six man of the year last year. Trez has been playing good, but they're still a top heavy team and they always will be. Yeah, certainly agree with you there. Uh, the Lakers will head into the all-star break uh, doing pretty well. As we're recording here on Tuesday, they play the Suns tonight. Should be a really good game, um, but we'll see how this team uh ends up going into the All-Star break. But the All-Star break is this weekend. Uh, the game will be played in Atlanta at State Farm Arena with uh, the three-point contest and dunk contest coming at halftime. Um, good to see that they're having each of these, but, you know, it's going to be different. How's it going to be different, Robert? Yeah, so we're still going to get the skills challenge, which is quickly becoming my second favorite contest to watch of the night with the dunk contest being third. But we're going to get that and the three-point contest before the game, then the first half, and then the dunk contest at halftime. And then we're going to have the weird, like, 24-point ending or whatever like they did last year 
which honestly gave us a really fun ending to the game. The teams were playing very hard. And so I'm excited. All-Star Game is one of my favorite events every year. I love betting on all the competitions and losing money, but it's always been one of my favorites, and I hope we have a good one this year. Wish just, we could go to it. Yeah, that, exactly, Rob. And, you know, you mentioned it, but Keisha's not letting us go. And, you know, we talked about it last podcast, but it's really frustrating because I keep thinking about this three-point contest and this dunk competition. And with the, with the you know, new age of basketball where – the dunk is actually less common and we're seeing the three point much more, you know, the three point contest has already, you know, became a little bit lackluster to me. It definitely would be the third, my third favorite event when it comes to the all-star game itself. So I think that the no fans aspect for the dunk competition sucks. Yeah, I agree. That sucks. And I don't know who's going to give a damn like about the dunk contest. And I know that Obi Toppin's in it and we're talking about the Knicks earlier. I'm excited and I'm taking him as my winner. Um, I don't think they've mentioned they've announced everyone, have they? It's Anthony Simmons and then uh, not Darius Baisley, but some other younger. Right, guys. but you know, Obi Toppin comes in as the college guy. You know, he's going to probably have the majority of the action on him, I would think. So I'm excited to see what happens with that. I hope that these guys can stay creative without the fan interaction. I know that you know Aaron Gordon and Zach Levine put on one of the best shows of all time at All Star Weekend. So. It's really, really difficult right now as fans of the sport living in the city of Atlanta, unable to go, but we're going to watch, that's for sure. Yes, we will. Uh, like I said, that game will be taking place at 8 o'clock um, come Sunday night. Got a lot, a lot of sports to be looking forward to this weekend. As we mentioned, the big UFC card, uh, NBA All-Star Weekend, and even some spring baseball is starting. So great time uh, to be a sports fan as we get March underway. We thank you guys for listening today. Uh, we also thank our sponsor, Millie Package. Um, we appreciate y'all listening, and we will see you next week. Love you guys. Thank you for listening to Division Two Sports. For all Division Two Sports news, follow us on social media at Division underscore Two Sports.